Carrie in the photo looks the same. She looks better now than she did then. And it's just, she's like a fine wine. It's just getting good. And so you see that photo. It's a time where it's like, oh, we were young and life hadn't happened. We were, it was happy. It was great. You'd see that photo. There's two of them. We look good. Then you move to your right as you're walking in our house. And then you'll see a a cross stitch of something Carrie's great-grandmother did. And she stitched out of the Lord's Prayer. And that's hanging there. It's something that's very special to carry. And then as you, if your eyes come down, you'll see a shelf. Uh, that It's a, something that Carrie really likes. And it's a shelf that's in our house because she really likes it. Uh, everything is in our house because she really likes it. Uh, I'm in the house because she, she puts up with me. Um, and then you see that. And on it is my dad's picture uh, from when he was up here last. Uh, before he passed, we went sailing. And it's a picture of him, and, and he's on a sailboat. He loved it. A friend of ours took us out. And then next to that is the folded flag that we got from the army at his memorial. You see these little monuments inside our house, and they mean something to us. If you were to walk into my office, there's some strange things on my wall. It's kind of eclectic. There's, there's a picture of Nolan Ryan because I had a great time of watching him as his career went, and it's autographed with a ball inside of it. It means something to me. Above it is a picture of Yankee Stadium, and though I don't like the Yankees, uh, we, my dad took me there uh, on its last day, the last game that was there. We went and saw a game then before they tore it down and built that monstrosity that's there now. Uh, it was, and there's a ticket. Above that on the shelf is a picture that hung in my dad's office. Uh, it's a hymnal, and, and I remember watching him do this. He tore it out of the hymnal in, in church because they were getting rid of the hymnals. And it's the, it's the sheet music to Great is Thy Faithfulness. And it used to hang on his office wall. And it was his life uh, song. Uh, Tim didn't know that. It was just by chance that he picked that out today. So it's just kind of fun. I drive a car that my dad used to drive. When, when he passed, my mom said, you and dad used to go on these trips, and so why don't you take his car? I drive that. It's a monument to me. I have my dad's signature on my arm. It's a monument. When we look at our lives, and you all have the same things, we all have monuments in our lives. They could be pictures of a wedding day. It could, be, uh, it could be a flag. It could be someone's photo that hangs in your house. It might be a car. It might be a tattoo. It might even be a recipe. Uh, my mom makes these things called party potatoes. They are terrible for you. But whenever she's making party potatoes, it's like cheese and cream of something sauce with shredded potatoes and more cheese. But it gets healthy because there's cornflakes on top. Yes, they are delicious. Whenever I walk into her house, I know what they smell like. It's like, you're making party potatoes. Yes, that means there's going to be a party. It's going to be awesome. But there's something about that recipe that triggers all the times we had them when grandma and grandpa would visit, when we'd have Christmas dinner or Thanksgiving dinner, the party potatoes would cook. You might have something like that, a family recipe that's been passed down from time to time. We have these monuments in our lives. We have these monuments in our culture. There's a monument to Jimi Hendrix in Capitol Hill. We know that's there. There's a monument down here in Ballard. There's the old city hall, the old bell that hangs down in Marvin's Garden that was the city hall bell when Ballard was a city before Seattle took over. There's all these monuments across our town. We have a monumental battlefield of Gettysburg to remind us of four score and 20 years ago. There was a battle that was right there. 
we have these monuments in our lives, we have these monuments in our country that begin, that serve as a reminder of something that happened. We also have them as a reminder of how bad that humanity can get. We have the Holocaust Museum as a, that stands as a reminder to hope that something like this never ever happens again. We have the 9-11 Memorial that something like this to hope something like that never happens Again, when I was in South Africa some time ago, we went to the Apartheid Museum, which was heartbreaking. And they built that in order to educate people so that this thing would never happen again. We make monuments as reminders. We make monuments to beg a question. What happened here that caused us to make this memorial? Why does this stand in this place? The people of Israel, the Hebrew people, were great at making monuments. And it starts in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 28. Uh, Jacob is on his way. He's fleeing his brother and he's on his way to hiding. And he falls asleep and he has a dream. And in the dream, he saw angels going up and down a ladder. And he woke up and he said, I, this place is amazing. I had never thought that this place would be here. And he names the town Bethel. Beth is Hebrew for house, El is short for Elohim, house of God, that this place in this desert is known as Bethel. This is a house of God. Jacob liked to name his towns because later in Genesis chapter two, Jacob is traveling all night long and he has a wrestling match in his sleep and he's wrestling with God, it turns out, the next, the next uh, verse. In verse 30 of Genesis chapter two, uh, Jacob wakes up and he, na- and he calls this place Peniel, It is because I saw the face of God in this place, and yet my life has been spared. Peniel was the name for the face of God. Jacob named these places because something important happened in that place, and he wanted to remember how God showed up or how he was changed because of what took place in the most amazing places in his life. So he built monuments. In Exodus chapter 15, the people of Israel were fleeing Egypt. And as they're fleeing Egypt, they come to a body of water called the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army wants to kill them, wants to take them out. And they don't know what's going to happen. Then God splits the Red Sea. They walk across on dry land. They get to the other side. The Pharaoh and all of his chariots and his army was coming after them. And then once the last person of Israel gets to the other side, God closes the Red Sea and drowns Pharaoh's army. When they get to the other side and when they see that God had saved them, Miriam, Moses' sister, comes up and she writes a song in Exodus 15. Here's the first couple lines of that song. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God. I will exalt him. Captured moments for the people of Israel. Bethel, Peniel, and then the other side of the Red Sea. Songs, names of places. These were times where God had saved them. Times where they met God face to face. And there was one other time that they came about. It was in Exodus chapter 24. The people is trapped in slavery. After the Red Sea, Exodus 24, they're standing at the foot of Mount Sinai. Moses had gone up. He had received the law. God told him that that he should come up, that he should bring some of his friends, and that they were going to stand there. And then Moses, while Moses approached the Lord and went a little bit closer. And then Exodus 24, verse 3. And then Moses 
uh, in verse 3, and Moses went and told the people the Lord and his, the, all the Lord's laws, and they responded with one voice, and they, they said, everything the Lord has said, we will do. This was God proposing a relationship to the people of Israel. I have brought you out of slavery to this point. I will be your God. You will be my people. This was a wedding taking place. And the people of Israel responded and said, we do, I do. They were married now. There was a relationship. This, these were God's people. The people responded to that. And then verse four, Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain, and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. These pillars served as a monument of the covenant of what just took place on top of Mount Sinai. There's some pictures of these kind of monuments, and I think, Craig, you have some in there. Uh, Tim said they were there. If they're not, blame him. Uh, but there's, these are maybe what they look like. Some historians say that these were the ones that Moses stacked. Other people say these were times, these were other memorials, but this is what they might have looked like. I don't know who to believe, but these are rocks that were standing as a memorial for what had happened there. This could be them, it might not be, but this gives you an idea of what these places look like. They kind of stand out, right? When you're walking along, you'd see those and you go, oh, that's cool. That's a rock memorial. Something, something happened here. Moses stacked these rocks. He told them to bring 12 of them for the 12 tribes of Israel to remember what took place on this mountain. Not only on this mountain, but remember what took place before they got to this mountain. Remember that they had been in, in slavery for 400 years. They'd been in slavery. And now they are free. And now they are no longer slaves. They are called the people of God. They are God's representatives to the rest of the world. This is what they've committed to. Forty years later, after wandering around in the desert, Moses had died. Joshua was now in charge. And when Joshua comes in, he brings them to the beginning of the Jordan River. And they're standing on one bank. Across the river is the promised land, what they had been searching for this entire time, why God took them out of Egypt. And they're standing on the bank of the Jordan, and there's a huge river, and then where they're supposed to go. Now, I love context, so this will be a little bit nerdy for some, but I'm talking so you get to listen. Uh, Jordan is Hebrew for fast-moving. The Jordan River begins at the, at the base of Mount Hermon, 9,000 feet high. It flows downhill for 224 miles and ends at the lowest part of, of the water called the Dead Sea, which is 1,250 feet below sea level. So in 224 miles, it goes down 10,000 feet. That's pretty fast moving, right? And so they're standing on one side of the river, and Joshua is quick to point out in the next couple chapters that it was at flood stage. So it's probably the spring, early summer. Water is humming down the river and they're standing there on the side of it and they have to get across it. And if they're like me, I'm standing at this fast moving river, I would probably be wondering, how do I get across this? Is there a way to go around? Can we walk around the Dead Sea? Can we go over Mount Hermon? Because I don't want to cross the rapids. Is there a ferry boat? There's no bridge. How are we going to cross this? And then Joshua, in Joshua chapter three, God says this to Joshua. Tell the priest to carry the Ark of the Covenant 
And when you reach the water's edge, go stand in the river. How would you like to be a priest that day? They used to carry the Ark of the Covenant. There was two people in the front, two people in the back. Go into the river, which meant probably go into your knees. That means the person in back had to go into their knees. The person in front had to get a little deeper. And stand in the river. That was an act of faith. And so Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. See, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe, And as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. Now the Jordan River is at flood stage during harvest, yet as soon as its priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a great distance away in a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan while the water was flowing to the Sea of Arabah, that is the Dead Sea. It was completely cut off, so the people crossed over opposite of Jericho. Does this remind you of a story that happened maybe 40 years ago at Sinai? God stops the river of Jordan and, and, and at the Red Sea. God splits the water to let them know that he's caring for them. But look what happens after this. After this has happened, Joshua commands the men, Uh, When the whole nation had finished, this is in uh, Joshua chapter 4, when they finished crossing, the Lord said to Joshua, choose 12 men from among you, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you, and put them down in the place where you'll stay tonight. So Joshua called together 12 men that he had appointed from the Israelites, from one from each tribe, and they said to him, go over before the ark of the Lord, your God, into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of Israel, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So that the Israelites, so the Israelites did what Joshua had commanded them. They took twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number, number of the tribes of Israel, as the Lord had told Joshua. They carried them over to them with to their camp, where they put them down. Joshua set up twelve stones that had been in the middle of Jordan to the spot where the priests carried the ark of the covenant, and they stand there to this day. So, in summary, here's what happens: they come to the river Jordan, they can't get across. The priests go. They say, everyone gets across, and then Joshua says, you 12 from each tribe, go pick out a stone, take it back with you. We're going to make a memorial because something happened here that we don't want to forget. We crossed into the promised land, our 40 years of wandering, our 400 years before that, and now we're here. We want to remember this place. And then there's that line, so that when your children ask what happened here, you will be able to tell them everything that happened. 
When you ask a Hebrew person, a Jewish person about the Exodus, you'll always get this response, when we did this. It's a present tense or it's a personal tense. It's not something that happened far off to them. It's a very personal, real story. When we were slaves in Egypt, this is something that each one of them felt. Now they get across the river. This is a huge moment in their culture. Now they're in the promised land and this serves as a sign, as a conversation starter so that kids, when they're walking with their parents or rabbis, when they're walking with their students, will look over and see stones on top of stones, 12 of them, and they'll say the words, Makarah, what happened here? This is strange. Something's different about this place. Makarah, what took place in this spot? And then the rabbi, the parent, the friend would say, oh, when we were slaves in Egypt, God brought us through the desert for 40 years. We crossed the Jordan River, and this was the place where we camped. It stirred a question in them. These places were sacred. When God showed up at this place, it was special to us. We don't ever want to forget this. These stones would cause a question. They would provide a moment. And from it, they would beg what happened. And it would be for everyone to know that God stood with them. The New Testament picks up on this a little bit. The authors of the New Testament were very familiar with this story. And so in 1 Peter, he says this in 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, an offering, spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For scripture says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, chosen to be a precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become their cornerstone or capstone. What Peter's doing is he's quoting Psalms about the cornerstone that where the stonemasons would cut and they'd bring to the top of the mountain to build Solomon's temple. There was one stone that, that one writer, the authors talk about, and they, they brought this stone, they lugged it all the way up to the top of the hill and the builders looked at it and went, no, not good enough. Put it to the side. We're not going to use that. And so the guys, I would have been ticked off, man. I just lugged this stone up the hill, and now you're telling me no, and I got to go get another one? Great. But that stone stood on the side over there. It was the one that they rejected, and for hundreds of years, it stood there. So when Peter talks about the stone that, they re- that was rejected, they're talking about that one. That was a real stone that they knew. And Peter said, that's our cornerstone. That's the one that was rejected. That's the one we build our temple on. And he's getting to this idea that each one of us are living stones or living monuments, you could say, being built up into something that is spiritually driven and supposed to help and bless humanity. Each one of us is a living stone, a living monument, not something that happened in the past but something that has life and something that is bringing people and blessing and causing people to ask a question of what is God doing? And then in verse eight, Peter says this, 
a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. These are the exact words that God would have said in Exodus 24 to his people, saying, you are my people. You are my priesthood. You are my representatives of of me to this earth. Peter is reminding them, we are the memorials that cause us to remember who God is. And he says this, that through Christ, we've been changed, but we haven't been changed just to say that we've been changed. Peter says something. He says, we are changed in order that we may bring change. We're blessed to be a blessing. We've been given mercy so that we can give and share mercy. And then Peter continues, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners, as exiles, abstain from sinful desires, which rage war to your soul, Live such good lives among the pagans so that, they, that though they accuse you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Now, what is Peter getting at here? Makarah. Live such good lives among the people who don't know Christ that then when they see you, a living stone, a living monument, they look at your life and go, what? what's happening here? There's something different here about you. What happened that you're this way? I have a friend back home. His name's Ryan. And uh, he, Ryan, when I met him, was a different person than what he was before I met him. I heard about Ryan when I was in high school. I went to San Diego for like seven or eight years. I came back, and then I met Ryan. Ryan was, and that's his real name. He doesn't care. Uh, Ryan was the guy who supplied the drugs for all the parties. My friends used to go to this party. I wasn't cool enough to go to parties in high school. Uh, It just didn't happen. It wasn't invited. When I did go, I took advantage of my drunk friends and charged them gas money every gas station I saw. And I made five bucks at every stop, and I came away with a full tank. That's probably why I didn't get invited to parties. But Ryan dropped out of high school because it interfered with his drug dealing. And then he started using what he was selling, and then he had to make more money to keep his supply up, so he decided to steal cars, chop them up, and send them off for parts and make money that way. Ryan was a good businessman. Bad business. But this was Ryan's life. He was known as the supplier. He was known as the dealer. He looked the part. He acted the part. One day, Ryan was at his apartment. His apartment was pretty stupid to live there, right? He lived just on the other side of the wall from the Fullerton Police Department. So when he looked out his back window, he saw all the squad cars leaving. He said, this is perfect, hidden in plain sight. They'll never find me. And it took them a while to find him. One day, Ryan was going, uh, parking one of his stolen cars, and he did something. He broke a law. The cops pulled him over for like a traffic ticket. Uh, They ran the plates. The car was stolen. Ryan goes to jail. And he kind of said, I deserved it. I was, you know, I've been doing it for a while. 
This is what I get. And so he's in jail and he has one of these moments. Ryan grew up in a kind of a Christian home, just didn't buy into it. And he says his story goes like this. When he was in prison, he was being checked into Chino State Penitentiary. And uh, he, as he's going in, he says, God, get me out of this, please. I'll do anything. We've seen the prayers, right? A few days later, Ryan's walking out. He's not, gonna, he's not going to stay in prison. And so he says, okay, I got to live up to my end of the bargain. Ryan's pretty loyal. He keeps his word. And so he starts attending meetings. He starts coming to church. This is when I met Ryan. I was doing a, leading a Bible study at a church in town, and he started coming. And he walked in, and he looked the part. Just imagine drug dealer, car thief, high school flunky. This was what Ryan looked like. And he comes in, and we start talking, and we start hanging out. And over time, Ryan cleans up. Then, this is a couple years later, Ryan and I are out surfing. He's one of my closest, dearest friends. We're out surfing. People recognize Ryan. One guy paddled up and with a lot of colorful language said hello. And uh, I was just like, this, this, is, this happened. And he's asking Ryan all these questions, and Ryan just answers him. It's been a few years now. He's out of that life. He's been sober for a while. He doesn't sell. He's helping people get out of that life. He's, he's part of a team that's going to plant a church. Ryan is totally different. And this person asks them the question. They catch on after maybe five or six minutes. And they go, dude, bro, what happened to you? You're totally different. And Ryan goes, yep. What's that question that that person asked Ryan? Makara. What? What happened here in you? Now you are changed. Ryan's life was a living, breathing monument to a place where God showed up and saved and redeemed him. And now Ryan walks through town, old La Habra, where he used to live and sell, and people recognize him, but Ryan is totally different. He's an associate pastor at a church. He's completely changed. Ryan's life begs a question. What happened? And people look at him, and it's not like you're weird, but they look at him and go, I see something in you that I'm drawn to, that I want to have. Makara, what's going on in your life? What's going on in you? And I want a part of it. Ryan always answers, well, you got 15, 20 minutes. Let's go grab some coffee and I'll sit down and tell you about Jesus. And they go and they listen. And sometimes they walk away and say, I don't need any of that. And Ryan goes, cool, save my number because you will. And we'll talk. Ryan's life is begging a question. God is at work in him and it's on display. It's attractive. I wonder what it would look like in this next year if our lives became as attractive to the people around us, that when they looked and saw us, they would go, Makara, what's going on at 6541 Jones Avenue North every Sunday? I want to be a part of that. Carrie and I went for a drive on Tuesday or Wednesday, the week between Christmas and New Year's. I don't even know what day it is. And so we were driving, we went up north, we're driving down, and I start seeing all of these old churches on the side of the road, and Carrie's asleep, Judah's asleep, I'm just trying not to make any noise or swerve because I don't want to wake any of them up. And I'm just looking around. And I start seeing these churches, and something that's, I'm a nerd, 
And I look at that church and go, oh, that church, that's this denomination. They probably think this or they do that. This is what that church believes. This is what this denomination holds to. And I start knowing what every church is for, but mostly I start knowing what every church stands against. And I go, this is what they are known for. They're known by things that they're against. They're not known for what God is doing. Some of them are known for what God did 30, 40, 50 years ago. But they're not known for what God is doing yesterday, today, tomorrow. Where is God moving? Their monuments have ceased life. And I can be pretty cynical, I can be pretty ornery, and I probably am about most of them, but it got me thinking, what is God doing in your life now? What's the thing he has set in front of you that he wants to complete in you so that you can keep living as that living, breathing monument into the future that when people look at you, they go, something is different about this person here. I am attracted to it. I need to ask them why. What's happened here? Makara, what is God doing here? The very first church in the book of Acts, uh, this is what they were try, striving for. In the book of Acts, the church was called the way. They weren't called something about what God has done. This was an active way of living. This is something attractive. They weren't known for what they knew about God. They weren't known for their theology. They were known primarily for what God has done. But more importantly, they were known for the way they lived. And they were known for what God is doing. This is the kind of church that is attractive to people. These are the kind of lives that are attractive to people. They would come to church and people were healed. The poor were cared for. The, the outcasts were brought in. People got to know God because of the way that they were living. And so I wonder as we head into the next year, what would it look like for the Holy Spirit to grab a hold of each and every single one of our lives, our families, our church, our gatherings, and God get in there and the Holy Spirit began to work and move and we began to model this kind of living testimony, this kind of living monument where people would look at us and go, something is different about you and I need to know what is going on. And you and I can both respond with, we've got a few minutes, we can talk about Jesus and how he changed us and how he gives us hope in this day where we don't have hope. So the question for you, as you look at your families, as we all do this time of reflection before we turn on Ryan Seacrest tonight, is where can God use you in the coming year? Where could God use your family in the coming year? What's that one thing that you can join that you've been thinking about, that God's been putting on your heart, that God's been putting in your mind? What's the one thing that you can join? What is it that your gathering can do? Maybe the thing that you can join is a gathering. And what is it that when you're in a gathering, what is, your, what is it that your gathering can do? To begin to beg the question from people, what's going on here? What is the thing that you can start? What's the thing that you should probably stop? Where is God calling you and what and how can you be a monument built so people when they walk into the front door of your life will go, what's this event? Oh, that's this time. God did this 
and I'm changed because of this. And then they walk to the next monument of your life and go, this is when God did this. This is when God did this, and this is how I'm changed. And they start to look at you and begin to ask, Mahara. And then they start to look at the church and they see it as an agent of good and they start to say, Makara, what's going on here? What happened here? So as we consider this, I want us to do something we don't do very often. Is bow your heads, close your eyes. I'm going to keep mine open. I think Tim's going to have his open because he's walking forward. We don't want him to fall. So if you close your eyes, we're going to sit in silence just for a second. And we do this thing with silence because we want to ask what is it that God has for us in this next year? So I'm going to ask some, maybe three, four questions. And you have a lot of blank space in your bulletin where you can fill out the questions or maybe your answers. Here's the first question. What was the last time a person was so deeply moved and intrigued by the way that you were living out the ways of Christ? There's no guilt. There's no shame here. When was the last time someone saw you? Who were they? What did they see? Next, ask God, who are the people around me that don't know you, God? And how can I live in a way that deeply compels them to ask questions about your son? Next question. What does God have for you and your family and your community for this coming year? Last question. Would you be open to hearing God's spirit leading you into something big and scary this next year? Pray with me. Father, January's coming and it's a time of change. It's a time of excitement. It's a fresh start. But Lord, as we gather with family and friends tonight and, and count down or count up or go to bed early, whatever we have planned, Lord, may we begin to look at our lives as living monuments. Ways that when people look on us, they see something different and they begin to ask what happened. And it's a time where you showed up in the most unlikely place. And you redeemed, you restored, you forgave, you gave hope. God, whether that place is at work, where we start to look at our work in uh, redeeming ways, where you are present and active, and where you want to be in our workplace, Lord, whether that's with our families, the way we start spending vacations, the way that families uh, begin to gather, the way that families are hospitable and invite people in. Lord, maybe it's with gatherings, a community that cares for one another. Lord, may you begin to open the doors in our lives. May your spirit come in and convict and prod and push so that when people look at our lives, when they look at our church, they'll say, what's happening here? And we'll be drawn to you. They'll start asking the questions.
pray.